What's going on, everyone? This is my talk with Trent McConaughey from Ascribe. Now, if you haven't heard of Ascribe, of Ascribe before, it was a company that years ago was trying to make it easy for artists to put their NFTs on Bitcoin. Of course, they weren't called NFTs back then, but it was just putting your art on Bitcoin, tying it to the blockchain. And by all accounts, Ascribe did a pretty darn good job of it. You know, artists, I've talked to numerous artists now, tell me how great a platform it was. Uh, unfortunately for Ascribe, it was just too darn early. Pretty much anything that was built on Bitcoin in 2015, 16, 17, simply failed. But now there's this renewed interest in historic NFTs. And so Ascribe has come back into the limelight, um, you know, basically because people are hunting for these NFTs. So Trent and I get into what it entails for artists to access the works once again on Bitcoin. And on a side note, if you know anybody, any artists who are um, who use Ascribe to put their their works on Bitcoin, have them shoot me a DM and I'll try to point them in the right direction if they're looking to access those old NFTs. I'm happy to help out. And here we go. Why don't you guys enjoy my full podcast with Trent McConaughey. I'd like to know a little bit about your history first. Um, it's kind of the standard question how you got into blockchain, but um, maybe more interesting to me is how you kind of got into this idea of art uh, or adding art to Bitcoin and the blockchain, was that just something that happened within Ascribe by chance or was that something you guys were planning on? Um, walk me through a little bit of your backstory, I guess I'm saying. Uh, sure. So um, I was raised in rural Canada. And my mother was an art teacher, a uh, high school art teacher. Um, and, you know, I grew up programming computers, all that sort of thing, studied electrical engineering. Uh, you know, although I did contemplate becoming an artist, I just decided that, you know, I also like to build. So I decided to just go the, the builder route. Um, and then, you know, did, I spent almost 20 years in the world of um, AI for designing computer chips. And then, um, you know, while I, you know, via two companies and a PhD. And um, in uh, 2013, my wife and I uh, uh, found ourselves in Berlin, Germany. And I guess a couple, you know, rewind a couple of years. Um, I've been following Bitcoin since, I don't know, 2010 or so, um, and even bought some in 2011. Friends of mine and I would hang out and talk about it incessantly all the time because we thought it was cool, among other things too, of course. And, you know, bought some of it in 2011, lost those keys long ago. <laughs> but yeah, um, right. in, so in 2013, though, we, we moved to Berlin. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the first things I did was, you know, Google around to see if there's uh, any interesting meetups or otherwise going on. And there was uh, a meetup uh, called uh, Bitcoins Berlin, and it was at Room 77, which I already knew to be um, the first place in the world, bricks and mortar place in the world, that uh, accepted Bitcoin. And not only did it accept Bitcoin, it accepted Bitcoin for beer. So that was, you know, pretty no, sweet. So I went there. That's for the amazing. Ten thousand Bitcoin per beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So, um, so this was early 2013, and um, I went there and. You know, when it, when I, when we moved there, we knew like a total of like two people. So I went there and it's like, wow, these are my people, right? So like everyone was talking a lot about Bitcoin and, and the future, but also about blockchain. And this was early 2013, which yeah. is, um, you know, I had actually thought a, a fair bit about Bitcoin, but I, ha I hadn't dove deeply enough in, into the technology to really realize the implications of blockchain. So starting to hang out at these meetups, you know, every, you know, few weeks or so, um, I, then it became very, very clear, like, oh, wow, like this is a huge field on its own, right? It's as big as AI or any of these other general purpose technologies. So, um, uh, so actually, so, so that was, that's a piece of the puzzle. Another piece is simply, um, my wife is a professional in the R world. So she has um, a PhD from the Sorbonne in Paris, um, studying art history, the relationship between art and commerce. Um, she uh, worked uh, assistant curating at the Louvre. She studied, she has a degree also in museology from the Louvre and, um, and then also, you know, worked uh, around commercial galleries, all this sort of thing, focusing on contemporary art. So, you know, I, I kind of grew up surrounded by art with my mother um, wow. and then, you know, mar married, uh, you know, a world, a woman from the professional uh, world of art as well. Um, you know, I've always ha had this love for art. So um, gotcha. in 2013, uh, you know, we loved Berlin also in that fact that, you know, Berlin is amazing for artists, right? So we were, you know, all the time just going around looking at different um, exhibits and so on, um, shows. So coming, you know, some Saturday afternoon, coming from some show, um, her she was uh, talking about the problem of uh, digital art, you know, how hard it was for collectors to collect digital art. 
and how hard it was for digital artists, like artists creating digital art to monetize, to make real money from this. And there were some so-so solutions like at the time, uh, you know, unique um, internet domains were starting to become a bit of a thing, although they weren't that valuable yet. And there are some other attempts and stuff too, right? So we kind of like, and at the same time, I was going on and on about blockchain and, you know, she's sympathetic to my, my ravings and ideas. And so we, we asked, kind of looked at each other and it's like, what if we could put, what if we could own digital art the way that we own Bitcoin? And that was the question we asked in early 2013. And um, then we basically, you know, pulled on the thread and it turned out, you know, it was a pretty good thread to pull on. So throughout 2013, we basically iterated, um, you know, fleshing out the idea, uh, uh, working with some others to, to build the initial prototypes. And then, you know, throughout 2014 as well, you know, turning it into a beta and then to, you know, get raising some money um, and then taking it, um, you know, shipping it and taking it to production and growing usage. Wow. So, yeah, so tw early 2013 was really when the seeds were planted and then uh, shipped publicly in about mid-2014. Wow. Did you have, when you shipped, did you obviously, because you're connected with the art world, did you already have like kind of a list of artists who were interested in it? Uh, obviously you were in Berlin. Is this where you like met Harm and, and these guys, is that how you guys kind of were connected? So when you launched, did you have mm -hmm. a grouping of artists who were like ready to go and give it a shot? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because, you know, so my co-founder, um, my wife, Masha, and I, a third co-founder, Bruce, um, so Bruce came from the world of, um, well, he's trained as an engineer and he um, had spent many, many years helping to build banks. So he understood all the ownership side. But Masha, you know, being co-founder, um, she, you know, knows this world well and knows how to engage with galleries and artists and so on. So, you know, soon after we had this idea, the first thing she did was start calling up um, artist friends and artist colleagues, if you will, um, who, and asking them, you know, what do you think? And, and then starting to reach out to artists who specialized in digital art. And so... Um, uh, one of the very first artists we engaged with was Jonathan Monahan, uh, based out of New York City, who is now quite active in the, you know, now NFT field, is called, of course. Um, mm -hmm. So we, this was, uh, you know, uh, late summer, early fall of 2013. And so with him, you know, we had test transactions on Bitcoin blockchain by October, November of that year with, with his works. And then uh, beyond that, uh, you know, Masha um, also then was reaching out to artists and, you know, we were meeting more and more artists in Berlin and whatnot too. And Harm was among that initial cohort of artists in Berlin, among a few others too, right? And another early one was Constant Dollar. So we, we were very lucky in that, you know, this um, small initial group of artists that we worked with were all like super high quality, really great to work with. And that really helped us in defining what we built. It's interesting. And um, well, there are a couple of things that are really interesting to me there because now I've obviously had a chance to meet and just talk with these varying artists and um, who did stuff early on early Bitcoin. Uh, not only with a scribe, but independently as well. And I'm, uh, I'm always fascinated because these are almost like they're all amazing artists. Like, and I'm not an art guy, but people who are art guys are like, no, these are all, these are, you're talking to all amazing artists. And I'm like, is it because they were so early, they're all geniuses or are they geniuses because they were early? like, what's the thing there that are they just, does it just align that? great artists are these early thinkers about things how, how what's your view on that it's just it's been kicking around in my mind like wh where are the ones who were who i mean i'm i'm sure there are some but who are the garbage artists who were doing stuff on bitcoin in 2014 like i just where are they why are each one of them geniuses like i just i'm wondering if there's a connection there tell me i'm crazy yeah, well, I think overall, um, it, you know, whatever profession you're in, whether it's, you know, um, doing a PhD in electrical engineering like I did, or you, you are our professional artists or professional museologist, whatever, if you want to make a contribution to your field, you need to be part of the story. You need to have some new ideas um, to sh that you share with others and, you know, work to help them understand those new, new ideas, et cetera. So I see that, you know, quite often um, in the world of art, um, you know, you're, you know, smart, creative, et cetera, and you know how to, you know, um, create some new stories, uh, some new narratives um, that are, you know, pushing the field of art forward in some particular way, right? Yeah. And so, um, and quite often, if there's sort of a whole new medium, then this can be part of the overall tooling and stuff, right? So, you know, um, whether it's, you know, using paint in, in arranging paint in whole new ways, whether it's like, you know, Picasso did, or back in the day, Da Vinci, whatever, right? Like, 
Um, there, so um, it's in general that this whole thing of um, adding to the um, contributing to the conversation and whatever pr profession it is, and the better you are at contributing to the conversation with meaningful work, um, then the more of an, an impact you can have, right? And I think that's the case with all these people that I mentioned, right? Harm and Jonathan, et cetera. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic. Thanks for getting my mind right about because I've just been kicking around and it's like it's just it, it was a bit boggling but then at the same time makes perfect sense and um interesting so when you first launched was the idea with a scribe that what we're going to do is take basically a clunky system uh to interface with bitcoin and we're going to make this approachable from an artist standpoint was that like your top line goal of it like what give me like the the strategy yeah. from your standpoint was this you know what were yeah. you guys thinking about at the time well the, the top line was um if you read you know the art magazines of 2013 era a lot of them are talking about this elephant in their own problem that digital artists can't get paid simple as that right and then uh, we were seeing the flip side of the story too with collectors um you know, one collector we saw had um, bought a DVD for $10,000 and on the DVD, there was some work and then he scratched the DVD, went back to the gallery slash artist and asked, hey, could I, you know, get another copy of this? And the artist said, no, that's the object, right? And so it's like, okay, so there's a bit of confusion. There's a bit of confusion around what is it that you're actually buying, right? And then you can say, okay, well, maybe you have a contract with this, but um, galleries tend not to have that out of the box. So if you want to line up a contract, it might cost you 5K of legal fees or something. So the thing that really drove us was simply like um, more than anything, helping artists get paid, right? Um, and then knowing once you have that, and, and the heart of that is provenance, good provenance, right? Uh, as in knowing the history of ownership uh, of who, you know, who created it, you know, a timestamp around that, and then going from person A to person B to person C uh, and so on. And think about it, right? Like, you know, now and then you hear about a new um, painting, a new Matisse being discovered, but people aren't really sure whether it's a Matisse, right? Right. So Is then you bring real? in some who, experts. Who says it's real, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and you never know for sure. This is the challenge, right? And, you know, um, art has this, um, you know, some of the stats are that it's still like roughly 50% fraud in art, right? Sure. And the thing is, if you can manage to, you know, and if you think about it, like a lot of um, the art experts who might bet this, um, they might not be getting paid that much other. So they are susceptible to getting bribed, et cetera. So it's kind of sure. a tough situation, right? But what if you can leverage a new technology to have essentially perfect provenance, right? Mm -hmm. So, or at least, you know, whenever that first claim of ownership was made and then the chain of the claims of sub-licensing from person A to person B, B to C, C to D and so on, right? So, um, and, you know, you can't have the value of the art um, piece until you've got some chain of provenance. And ideally, it's you don't have to recover the chain. Ideally, it's just there from day one, right? And that's the problem with digital art too, right? Like if I, you know, download some, you know, right-click and download some GIF and claim it as my own, people will say, well, prove it, right? So, um, so basically, once again, the proving is in the provenance. Yeah, it's uh, I, yeah. As I think we can all agree, it's the the fantastic thing about blockchain um and current nfts is uh is that it provides that one thing i i it was just occurred to me um the idea of uh, artists getting paid which i think is i mean we've we've all seen it now with multiple i mean i know dozens of of people actually who couldn't even make it as artists uh and were working at you know uh adobe or whatever um as as kind of graphic artists or whatever who are now making a living as nft artists um which is fantastic were you guys thinking about like continual royalties back then you know like what we see with a modern nft where mm -hmm. the artist can kind of set these ongoing royalties for uh additional sales was that any structure that you built into ascribe back in the day uh so a few things um so first of all actually it's interesting even some artists who are get famous after they're dead um, you know, Van Gogh is the best example. He never had a single piece sold when he was alive, right? right. Um, so, and that's really sad, right? It's so much better if the artist can get paid um, when they're alive. So then the question of, um, <laughs> it, right? Because then they can feed themselves and, you know, raise a family and so on, right? And even some of these excellent artists that, you know, I, I, I've mentioned, and there's many more, a lot of them have had to have side gigs for a long time, right? So I sure. love that there's, 
I love that there's a lot of more, more money flowing around NFT land now because it means that these artists can focus, you know, their their time full time on what they're, you know, truly great at, right? Yep. So then on the question of, um, you know, what, uh, you know, were things like royalties, um, had we thought about that back then? So remember, we started working on this in 2013 and we engaged with a lot of artists and we kept, you know, working at it steadily, steadily for about two and a half, three years and shipping even for a couple of years after that. Um, so there was all manner of features, feature requests for, um, for different things. And royalties was something that popped up a lot. And the way that um, uh, royalties are typically implemented is something called is basically ARR artist resale rights, which is actually the law in France and many other countries, right? Like if I'm an artist, I create a painting and then I sell it to you, um, you know, I'll get the money, right? Typically through a gallery, but I'll get some money. If you go and sell it to someone else, uh, I'm supposed to get 5% of that sale price. In right. practice, it never happens because right. like, you know, there's no way the, to enforce it, right? The enforcement, there's no way to enforce it. Expensive. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so, and that's actually a form of royalty um, that is actually supposed to be built into the law. Now, what's great actually, and, and you know, to help artists sustain themselves stuff. So I, I love that now, um, you know, this simply becomes a good default um, with, you know, the NFT standards of today. Um, you know, with Ascribe, you know, we built on Bitcoin. Ethereum didn't even exist yet, right? Of course. So we built on Bitcoin and we did go out of our way to make a very nice UX, right? So people, you know, uh, would log in simply with a, a, an email and a password that they choose. And we never stored any of that or anything. Um, so, uh, you know, we went out of our way to have good UX and uh, there was all these features that people wanted. Uh, and, you know, we built some of them, right? So one of the ones very early on, for example, was museums. Um, wanted to be able to get a license uh, for, um, basically for a loan, right? So, you know, I have uh, edition number three of 10 of, of a particular work, and I want to be able to, um, you know, loan that to a museum for a month for some show, right? So we built that, for example, right? Uh, oh, wow. we, we That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and there, so museums are doing this. Um, you know, we worked closely with um, Creative Commons France, uh, where they said, hey, you know, um, beyond just traditional... Um, uh, art, like traditional, if you will, digital art. There's all these other um, things where people want, might want to make a claim that they have a, a Creative Commons license. So let's say you have a particular, you know, piece of text or or image or otherwise, you want to say, hey, I want to license this to the world as CC0, like basically free to the world. So I want to just declare that, and you can timestamp and declare that. Then, and we created a special site called cc.ascribe.io just for that, working with Creative Commons France and Primavera de Flippi. So, so those are examples, and there's a lot more too um, that we did over the years, based on you know people asking for feedback here and there, and we just kept doing that, right? Like getting feedback, building the thing, and getting feedback, building the thing. In. Yeah, it's uh, wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, the first thing was the the royalties, um, just because even even with today's modern NFTs, right? You can set royalties kind of through OpenSea and their various mechanisms, but the reality is is you can if people want to bypass those royalties, they still can, right? So there are, in most cases, there are still these kind of like mechanisms that have to either be um, just kind of honor code or whatever to actually continue to pay those. I'll give you an example, like the Curio Cards uh, set that just sold at Christie's, right? Um, the reality is the person who sold that, that set of 31 cards, they don't have that transaction because it didn't take place through OpenSea or whatever they don't necessarily the artists who normally get a one percent royalty on the curio card sales don't necessarily get it right um that would be kind of like honor code to you know transact and give the artist their um you know their royalties so i think it's it's but, interesting but i but yeah. but i i would say like at the heart of it when it's all on blockchain, you actually can have it enforced simply by by default, right? Like it's just there. So Christie's happened to be doing off-chain stuff, OpenSea mm -hmm. maybe a bit, but um, you can have it set up where every time there is um, a sub-licensing happening. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I guess in ERC-721 line, you think of it simply as a transfer of ownership. Every right. time there's a transfer of ownership, then you can um, have it set up where there um, is uh, fees going over, right? Um, right. But but that might get in the way of different pricing schemes and so on. But um, you can still set it up, right? Um, so yeah. blockchain gives you a lot of flexibility, and I think this is really good because you want to provide good defaults towards the uh, artists getting paid. Yeah, it's interesting the the thing you were doing with like the the interface where people could, you know, just log in with an email. Um, it's so interesting because it gets to this idea of like 
use cases for crypto, right? And mm -hmm. how difficult it is, you know, the on-ramp for most people to get into crypto nowadays still, right? I'm still walking people through who want, you know, friends of mine who want to buy NFTs and I'm walking them through, you know, getting a hardware wallet. How do you do MetaMask? All this sort of stuff, right? And I've talked with multiple people about, you know, how crypto needs to get much easier um, yeah. to onboard, you know, the world. It needs to get simpler. Um, so can you walk me through what you guys were thinking back then about doing that? where you know the keys they don't have the the you know the keys necessarily but what were you guys think were you just thinking about easy on ramps back then like how were you thinking about it so two things uh, I'll, I'll i'll answer this in two parts a on sort of the status of ux today in blockchain and then b i'll talk in more detail about the ux we had the status of ux today if you're used to web3 if you've you know used metamask at all or metamask with trezor or whatever um, that very quickly becomes a better UX than Web2 because you don't have to keep logging in and logging out the way that you have to do with Web2. You know, when I'm, you know, doing uh, exchanging tokens and stuff, I generally avoid any of the centralized exchanges because it's just so much simpler to go to Balancer and Uniswap, et cetera. Connect, you know, swap, connect, swap, or straight, straight through MetaMask now, right? So, um, uh, and we're going to see more of that, right? Like uh, Vitalik gave a talk, what, six months ago on, you know, Ethereum login, right? Um, login with Ethereum. And so um, that is, you know, um, the Web3 way where uh, username is public key and password is private key. Um, right. And that private key could be in a hardware wallet, et cetera. So I actually think that it, it, um, the UX has gotten a lot better. And once you get a, even a bit of practice with it, you real, start to realize, oh, wow, this is already better. Yeah. Um, then to what we built, right? So, um, you know, Bitcoin had been out for a few years by then, not many. Um, Ethereum wasn't even a sparkle in Vitalik's eye yet. Um, <laughs> although he'd actually built some pretty Vitalik cool- Vitalik was still um, 10 years old now. <laughs> no, 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 but he, he'd actually I built, know. interestingly, you know, he'd been, you know, he started Bitcoin Magazine and, and he actually is a Python coder too. So he had written some really nice libraries in Python to interface with Bitcoin and we used those. They were, they were quite good. Um, and so for uh, Ascribe, uh, we were very adamant that we never ever held the keys or the passwords or anything. So. Um, when someone goes to the front end, you know, this was ascribe.io, they would, uh, just like any signup of any Web2 thing, you enter your username and your password. And then what it would do is it would take that and um, uh, basically hash it into a private key, right? And then that private key, um, it would be using to, to sign transactions, right? And, um, but it would only do that on the fly. Like whenever you did a transaction, it would be doing that on the fly. Um, so that it didn't ever have to store the password. And um, there was some centralized database stuff there because at the time there was no other way to do it um, for things like storing metadata, et cetera. And um, that was associated with your email address. But once again, the password was simply um, a hash of the password itself just for that, which was a standard security pack, is a standard security practice for anything web two, right? Whenever I hear about these web two companies getting their whole database of passwords hacked, I always just like kind of shake my head because it's like, guys, all you have to do is hash the passwords because, you know, all you have to do is check is that if the hashes match, right? So um, anyway, uh, that's what we did, right? The summary is that, um, you know, onboarding was straightforward because um, people just onboarded like they did normally with their username and password. But then at the same time, with this hashing trick under the hood, hashing of username and password together, then um, you use that, you, from that you construct the private key. And then you sign the Bitcoin transactions with the private key and send them off to the Bitcoin network. So and that private this, key. Right? So is that private key kind of regenerated each time, or it's somehow stored? Yeah. And, and but the uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's generated each time. Um, but okay. then you know, like um, the HD wallets of Bitcoin had just come out like a year before, so we were able to leverage where you could have a different sort of sub key, et cetera, for each different um, uh, address, right? And part of the way that the protocol of ascribed worked is. Whenever you um, uh, publish a piece, then you're, you know, uh, for, from a legal perspective, you are claiming copyright. And then you say you're going to create 10 editions. So that gets, you know, uh, that there's a transaction for that that you put to the Bitcoin blockchain to make that claim. And then after that, let's say you, tra um, you have 10 editions. Each, each edition gets its own Bitcoin address. And, okay. um, you know, initially as this creator, you have the, the private key for each of those um, separate Bitcoin addresses, all from that same password because it's fire, uh, um, following this HD wallet, hierarchical deterministic wallet, basically a, a tree of passwords, if you will, right? Where at right. the very, very root, 
that root node is defined by your private key, which is defined your root private key, which is defined by your username and password. So you can have all manner of sub passwords underneath that, right? And sub addresses, sub sub private keys. And yeah, going back to the protocol, then you know every time there's a transfer of ownership from person A to person B, like a sub license from person A to person B for some addition, say, then that's another transaction on Bitcoin, right? So you you get very very clean provenance. So it's sort of like a very thin, very sm um, small protocol on top of Bitcoin, an overlay protocol, if you will. Mm -hmm. We called it School, right? So, so yeah, that's how it works. How did um, uh, the images or whatever was associated with those particular pieces of art? Um, how were those stored, or where were they stored? What was the? How did you guys kind of organize that? Yeah, that's a great question. So at this time, you know, none of the decentralized options existed, right? Um, so uh, because of that, we um, uh, stored everything on AWS, right? So this was the, the S3 buckets to store the actual um, image files or, and, uh, and then basically a database to store metadata, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what we saw as, as the core problem, um, and you know, given the technology constraints of the time, the core problem really was the claim of ownership itself, right? The thing that can't be tampered with. So if you're gonna, that's the problem to solve initially. Right. But we were keeping a very close eye, right? Like as Ethereum started coming out and so on, we were keeping a close eye. And some of these early storage mechanisms too, like CN and, and so on, right? So, you know, close eye and iterating with those various folks and stuff too, right? To see if there's something that can work for us. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, um, and you know, it's sort of to fast forward uh, several years later when we did wind down Ascribe, we gave a long warning to all the people who had registered pieces and and bought pieces on the order of, I don't know, three months or six months, asking them to like download the pieces, et cetera. So the pieces that I had bought and collected, I have sitting in my own, um, you know, on, on my own storage, uh, the, each piece, uh, as well as the metadata for it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the key thing. Um, so if ever anyone ever wanted to sort of recover their pieces from a scribe days, if they, you know, have the piece itself, uh, and the metadata, great. If they have just the piece itself and they sort of half remember the metadata, that's probably close enough because it's just sort of sure. this claim of ownership, right? It's sort of like right. recovering a painting. Maybe you don't have 100% perfect, but in this case, as long as you have that chain of transactions around this thing, um, then then that that's you know kind of the main link, right? So, um, so obviously we've been talking in my Discord with um, <coughs> not only the artists but obviously lots of kind of. Uh, techie dev guys who are like, man, let's go find this stuff, right? They wanna, they wanna go back uh, and try and dig this stuff up because of the historical significance of the early works, right? Um, that they were, you know, obviously artists now are putting them the the same art, releasing it on Ethereum, but it's it's a little bit more interesting from a historical perspective having the original um, ones that were released on Bitcoin. So to get into the idea of if this is even possible or how it would be possible. I'm, I know you've talked to Harm about it, but for the layperson, kind of describe what it, what it would entail for an artist like Harm or anybody who put, um, you know, works with you on a scribe. What would that entail kind of um, getting those back? Yeah. Is it even possible and, and what would it entail? Uh, it's possible right now. There is no off the shelf solution for a non-technical artist. So Harm yeah. himself, he's also a developer, right? So uh, we worked closely with him after we were like went, while we were winding down the Ascribe site, we worked closely with Harm um, on him getting his stuff in, into um, Ethereum at the time, right? And um, but also, you know, that was you know uh, a few years ago now, but you could still do it today, right? Um, and at the heart of it, it comes down to um, you know this provenance trail and the, um, sort of of claims, right? So ideally, you know, someone goes and builds some tool where it's, you know, a, a slick front-end web app where people can enter their um, uh, information and then basically, well, let's see if you think this out loud, right? If you were the creator of like, well, to make it really, so, so there's the, uh, the developer way like Harm did. Um, and then there's ideally ways that are, yeah, a slick UX front-end, et cetera. And well, let's, um, let's say not slick yeah. UX, let's just say, yeah. A develop because I mean the people who are going to yeah. do this are developers, kind of like yourself. Yeah. They're technical. They're not going to have a slick you right. They just want to be able to yeah. access it, right? So what would be? Because yeah. I know, look, I've got like ten guys breathing down my neck. Yeah. you got to you know talk to them. Tell me about it. you know they, yeah, yeah. explain it yeah. to them because this is going to yeah. go. So for most of us, uh, yeah. you, you can fast forward through this five minutes of conversation. But for those yeah. guys, the guys who are technical who want to help old artists uh, kind of yeah. reclaim their stuff. Yeah, give them the, the technical kind of specs of what you would recommend that they do. 
Yeah, so um, at the, from the lowest level, right? Um, the first thing you want to, uh, there, there's two ways. There's the way with the private keys. And if you can't recover that, then there's simply basically bypassing that. So the way with the private keys is um, you can take the ascribe code. It's all on github.com slash ascribe. And um, you can run the code um, for the backend server, um, which basically is Python code. And you can enter your user, like if you are the, the, the publisher of this work and you still you know, own um, some of those editions, for example, then you uh, you know run this uh, script and in the right places you would in insert your um, username, aka email address, and your password. You have to have your password around, of course. And then with that, it would it would locally compute compute the private key, and then from that, um, you know you can do whatever transactions you want, right? So that's the heart of it. Where within that code, it has you know a few lines of code for calculating that private key. And you know, once you know, once you look at that code, you can see, okay, cool. I see it's using the you know Bitcoin HD wallet spec. It's taking this as an input. So you could you know run that code yourself, or you could say, okay, using those same steps, I could replicate that in whatever other code base I want to. Other mm -hmm. way. So that that's the heart of it is recovering the private key, and then from that, yeah, it's sort of you can do what you want. Now, um, given that the ascribe code base is all still there, um, you can also um, you know run not just the backend server, but you could run your own local frontend server too, right? And then have a slick UX to basically <laughs> look at it, right? Should we spin up a scribe again? <laughs> yeah, maybe, right? Ascribe twenty twenty one. There we go. Dot there com. We, there, there, yeah. Well, yeah. We still have ascribe.io, by the way. So um, okay. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah. So so with that, that's all a possibility, right? And that's that's one direction. Um, and that's sort of, you know, if everything was just staying on Bitcoin. Now, of course, if you wanted, you can also say, okay, how can we bridge this stuff from Bitcoin to Ethereum, right? Mm -hmm. And then with that, there's at least a couple ways. There's, you know, if, if you look in the DeFi world, um, the DeFi world is trying to bridge Bitcoins themselves into Ethereum DeFi, right? By, by wrapping them in various ways, like TBTC and WBTC with like RenVM, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you can use any one of those tricks um, basically uh, to also sort of have, you know, call it WBTC Ascribe or W Ascribe, right? In into right. Ethereum in that way, right? So that's one way. The other way is there's um, a few of these NFT type projects that are vaults for private keys, like sure. Emblem Vault and yep. um, um, uh, Charge Protocols and a couple others. And so all of those could be interesting too, right? So, so those are basically all different mechanisms. So as a baseline, right? You can just stay purely on, on Bitcoin, um, another, and then transfer it, say you own it, et cetera. Another one is to sort of uh, wrap it and um, port it across to um, Ethereum. Um, another way that isn't using private keys at all is just simply saying, okay, um, maybe I can prove that I have this old address, maybe I can't, but I'm going to simply um, claim copyright of this because of my reputation and other historical artifacts, et cetera. And then I'm simply going to republish on Ethereum or otherwise, right? And, and that's pretty reasonable to do too. It's not as, you know, sort of like, you know, recovering a Matisse. Is it a Matisse or not, right? In the case right. of a Matisse, it might be 50-50 fraud. Here it's probably like, you know, 1% chance of fraud or 5%, but sure. you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's still a bit of a risk compared to zero otherwise, right? So those are all the different options. Uh, I think they're all interesting. Um, and I would love to see, you know, a group of people that basically works to, to revive this and happy to provide technical advice to people that want to, right? Um, pointing out different, you know, pieces of the code. The code itself is actually in pretty good shape. It's a pretty small code base. We had several just truly awesome developers working on Ascribe at the time. So, you know, they built something they were proud of. And, you know, I, I, I built a lot more in the early days as time wore on. I got to code less and less. So, um, but in the end, you know, what's out there um, on GitHub is quite nice as a code base to work with. The, um, I guess the one question, and this was one that one of the developers hit me with was like, is there any way, um, like those images and stuff that were stored on chain or stored, sorry, with a scribe where you held them in those buckets or whatever, is there any way to respin that up so that the actual, you know, NFT on Bitcoins can point to the actual pieces of art that were stored somewhere? Is there yeah. any way to do that? Like spin those that that old those old I guess what you call them buckets or whatever of information. Yeah, yeah, the the yeah the, the file the files for the artworks themselves was sitting yeah. in an Amazon S3 bucket that all got deleted because it was actually uh, super expensive to store, right? Yeah. Uh, we actually had made it free storage just to minimize uh, friction um, for people to publish, right? But we had things where. Um, you know, there was someone, we had a weekend where someone hacked us and started storing giant Japanese manga movies 
And we came back after the weekend and had a $20,000 bill from AWS just for like, serving <laughs> these up. So, so uh, you know, we deleted all those and there was a playing whack-a-mole for a few weeks there with it. Um, but we still strive to keep the thing open. But overall, it's kind of show, points to how um, even, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, some of these large files cost real money. And, you know, we, we were a struggling startup, right? Um, the reason we pivoted away was because we were trying to raise a Series A and uh, everything was still evaluated by Web2 standards, not Web3, right? Web3 wasn't even a term yet. So, you know, we had to hit like 10,000 users growing quite nicely, et cetera. But, you know, 10,000 users is not a great number for Web2. It's an awesome number for Web3 to this day, but for yeah. Web2, not at all, right? So we had to pivot and that's what led us to being doing BigTeamDB and then more recently Ocean, right? And that's been our focus for several years is Ocean. But back then, because of that, you know, we were struggling startup, you know, basically trying to, you know, make ends meet, et cetera. And that's why we, um, yeah, uh, ended up winding down um, storage of these files. Um, but that said, you know, there is places where it's possible to recover, put some of it at least, right? So uh, one good resource is Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, right? Mm -hmm. So you can actually go to the Wayback Machine and just type in ascribe.io, and you'll see, you know, the website, um, different snapshots of the website, um, you know, a few snapshots a month going back to about mid 2014, right? Um, and uh, if you're lucky, maybe you'll even find some of the sub pages that have the images, et cetera. But that said, a lot of the digital artists, they tend to have their own archives, et cetera, right? So, um, you know, they just do. So um, that's a place. I, like I said, for myself, as a collector of some of this um, stuff, um, I have my own copies um, that, you know, from the works that I bought from artists, as well as, you know, I published a bunch of my own, like really crappy art, right? I'm not an artist, so, but it was fun yeah. to publish my own and, and so on. I remember I have one of like a donkey and a teeter-totter. <laughs> um, so, so I, you know, I've got that one stored in the metadata for it and all that too, right? So, uh, and there's a lot of stuff out there. We've had people reach out over the years, especially with the rise of NFTs uh, this year um, yeah. on this. And we, put, we tell them the same thing. I would love to be able to tell them something more detailed. So that's why I would love to see, you know, a group of developers, you know, who want to take this and run with it to do so, right? And spin something up and make it easy and recover this. And, you know, this ascribed out, whatever you want to call it. Well, I was thinking the, the, I mean, the people, um, I think what they were hoping is that you have a hard drive somewhere, <laughs> right? Yeah. That you could, that you could I, I, reload into Amazon AWS and that would be like, oh, there it is again. You know, uh, that's what they were hoping for. I think, um, yeah. I would love to say we did <laughs> obviously not the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, personally, I believe, um, almost every artist is going to have their stuff stored somewhere. Right. Um, yeah. the question then becomes though, okay, well, how do you, is there a way uh with let's just take one specific example there's an I, i'm an artist i stored it with a scribe it's one nft on bitcoin right that pointed to an image right on your mm -hmm. aws server is there a way to repoint that image to a new location for that image uh so that's a good question Offhand, I honestly don't remember, um, but it's something that can be identified very quickly by going to the Ascribe code base, right? So, you know, just github.com slash ascribe slash spool. Um, it's, it's possible. I know one thing you could do is simply, if you're controlling the private key of that, um, you know, particular work, then you could always create another transaction on Bitcoin mm -hmm. that um, sends, you know, has one output pointing to that old private key. And then you have a message in there, you know, using op return or something, um, coding, um, saying, you know, I am now claiming that I still control this piece, um, and um, and you basically point to the new image. And in fact, actually, if you do that, that doesn't mean you would control the address. You would, let's say, you owned a piece on address X, you would actually use that address and send more transactions. So you would just send another transaction from there, saying, hey, it's um, I'm, you know, reclaiming control of this thing. And the storage is now at location X, right? That would be the way oh, to do gotcha. it, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, so the heart yeah, of this that, comes that down actually, to that actually creates the the yeah the. I mean, this is what people are looking for, right? They want the provenance of that the blockchain provides, along with the original yeah. art. And if I'm the original artist saying, you know, the original art's been lost because the servers died, whatever, and this is the yeah. the same piece here. It is again now stored on IPFS or however we want to store it. Um, that would seem to yeah. make sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, and the the root of, the heart of this is um, getting access to those private keys. That then you can do whatever you want, right? Interesting. Yeah. Also, there's another tool for developers, which is um, uh, as part of a scribe. You know, we had been starting with with Vitalik's library, but you know, he um, stopped spending time maintaining it because he started working on Ethereum heavily. 
And so we wanted to um, just have a you know a better library yet. So within the um, the Ascribe organization GitHub repos, there is a repo just for you know Python level interactions with Bitcoin, and it's small and tight and really nice to use. And so with that, you can construct whatever arbitrary transactions you want on Bitcoin, right? So that could be very nice. You could use that library, um, import it, and then one level above, put together just some simple transaction. You know, and you could even extend the spool protocol, right? The spool protocol is the protocol for you know claiming copyright, specifying the number of limited editions, and um, the sublicensing of each limited edition, right? Transfer of ownership of an edition. Um, so you could extend that saying, okay, we're gonna have one more um, special operation here, which is um, uh, reclaiming of copyright. Um, well, actually that's already there in a sense. Uh, you know, claiming of, um, you know, sending the thing to to IPFS or the ownership to Ethereum or otherwise, right? And you can put in whatever arbitrary messages you want, right? So I think that would be a very useful tool. And then you've got the chain of provenance in this provable way, right? Even if it's not fully automated, if it's, you know, there's a few manual steps that can simply be executed in code, then that's enough for a lot of these people, right? So, Absolutely. but also I, I think actually, it could be interesting if someone wanted to, to actually simply, you know, spin up a scribe, um, you know, backend and front end, and extend the interface for, for the porting there, right? The backend's all Django Python, um, and the frontend's actually interestingly React. Um, you know, so someone, you know, we built this in 2016 or so. The React part, um, we were, uh, you know, going from just pure HTML, CSS with Bootstrap before that, and we were one of the first companies in the world to use React. A, a friend of mine at Facebook, um, he was like user number three, so then he pointed us to it, and we used it. So someone like to, uh, I heard a joke once where. Um, a scribe had a stack of a backend from 2013 and a frontend from 2020. So, <laughs> so, but what it means though, is actually now like that frontend, um, you know, it, it's something that is probably feasible to ship with pretty small number of tweaks right now, just to get the thing going, but then you could extend it also with this, um, you know, one, one or two extra, um, types of, um, transactions, right. Um, for, you know, claiming something on Ethereum or pointing to where the storage is, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And that'd be great. Uh, yeah, that was fantastic. How many artists do you think you you onboarded in, you know, 2015, 2016? How many how many different? I mean, were you looking? Were you trying to get from? I'm I'm thinking like my my business brain is thinking. Were you guys just reaching out to like, um, you know, museums or or groups of collectors that you thought, okay, if we hit them, we're going to get ten people. Like, what were you? What was your like strategy? And how many do you think you onboarded during that time? Yeah, so um, like overall 10,000 users, but you know, um, of those, um, you know, a fraction is artists, right? So right. Um, of the artists we engaged with intensively, maybe 100, I don't know, right. um, 50, 200, somewhere in there. Um, I, I, like these are the sort of like really high quality professional ones, right? But then there was ones beyond too, like, you know, that's sort of a shades of gray thing, right? Um, and uh, of those, uh, you know, we actually focused, initial effort was focusing on artists that were represented by galleries because that was mm -hmm. also a nice filter. And we knew how to engage with galleries too, right? And the galleries liked this because, you know, it helped to sort of secure the ownership uh, of the work, yeah. right? So there was a lot of work that was, you know, bought and sold, um, you know, with Ascribe as a tool used by galleries and then bought by museums, right? Like MIK Vienna was the first museum to buy some, you know, blockchain ascri ascribed art, um, I think it was, that was in 2015. Um, and then, you know, National uh, Museum of Singapore got some uh, and some more, right? And then beyond the basic digital artists, we also engaged, like a lot of other people, you know, saw this um, back then, right? And keep in mind in 2014, there weren't that many blockchain companies, right? So everyone kind of knew of everyone and so on. And, you know, we were the, the team that was working on digital art, et cetera. And whenever there was a blockchain conference, we would get invited to it and all that, you know, and you'd see the same, you know, 10 and 20 um, teams there um, talking about what they're doing and also all strategizing together about the future of, you know, how we can, you know, shape the future and all that, which was exciting. But what this also means is um, from that sort of visibility, um, then uh, people would reach out um, that were not, that were doing copyright, other forms of, of media, right? So. We had right. someone who um, uh, ascribed their novel on, on Bitcoin blockchain. Other people doing photography, a lot of photography um, and, uh, you know, comic books and posters and more things. Right. And that's all really exciting. We're, you know, we're happy that we were able to assist that. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, yeah. so overall there was. Yeah, that was the number. There was, I think, 40,000 works registered total and on the order of, I think, 150,000 editions. So on average, each work had whatever it was 10, 15, 20 editions, something yeah. like that. Right. It's uh, 
You know, it's so interesting because um, part of the the fun thing I've been able to be a part of is all these projects that were too early, right? Um, and for them, uh, which we've relaunched and they, they, they're kind of renewed, they're, they're magically risen from the dead, right? It's like they started a project, they actually raised like some like curio cards. It was like they were trying to raise VC funding in 2017, failed, made no money, and the project's been resurrected, right? And it's yeah. like, and now it's a big success, right? It's so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, that can't really happen with a scribe, but I think your place in history and your earliness to a space is just, it's really incredible. I mean, it's, you know, that so few people know about it is incredible because the, the impact and what you guys were trying to do so early um, is really quite incredible. I've got to, I've got to congratulate you on, on your vision because the vision yeah. in, you know, five years later has been completely justified, right? Your vision for yeah. what you were trying to do um yeah. has been completely justified right yeah. and so it's it's uh congratulations on that man <laughs> you know even though i'm sure it's still painful that it didn't work uh, out well right. uh, honestly no so overall th thank you by the way um so remember like we pivoted to big chain db um and that was you know targeting a different like overall we were trying to solve problems right um and that was targeting um you know the problem of, of storing of metadata actually and scaling blockchain right because ascribe we had been iterating with a photography marketplace that was going through 100,000 new photos a day and Bitcoin just couldn't handle that, right? So we were scratching our own itch with Bitcoin. Sorry, with, with tell, tell me a little bit about that. What, what, was, yeah. what was going on with that? What were they trying to do? Well, basically it was uh, a photography app, right? And people, you know, um, catering towards professional photographers and these photographers wanted to be able to, you know, claim their ownership in more secure wow. ways, right? So it's a very nice fit. But, you know, even at the time, it was 10 cents per transaction on Bitcoin. And, you know, you could bundle it up and stuff uh, like rollups are, they're called rollups now, right? But then you lose a lot of the provenance, or at least the provenance is not so easy to do. So we said, okay, what if you, um, is there some other way to scale this thing? And there was, you know, at the time in 2015, there was these Bitcoin scaling debates, right, in Hong Kong and otherwise. People saying, increase the block limit, no, don't do it, et cetera. And we said, well, you know, how does Facebook get to global scale? How does Amazon, et cetera? And, you know, there's this whole class of distributed database. They're not Byzantine fault tolerant, they're just fault tolerant. We said, okay, what if you had, you know, 10 or 50 of these things, each node of that being horizontal scaling, right? Um, so like MongoDB and all these databases have really, really awesome scalability properties. And that's actually what powers Facebook, et cetera. So we said, let's take one of these and, um, you know, decentralize it, like wrap it with something decentralized. And that's what we did. And the final version of that was, you know, the top part was uh, Tendermint, a BFT consensus. And the lower levels was uh, MongoDB at each node, right? Um, and so, you know, we built that and it scaled well, but there was actually so much traction um, or pot potential for traction from other industries that um, Ascribe basically took a second second seat, right? So at some point we're like, okay, you know, we got to focus. And that's when we, you know, we reached out to artists, started iterating with them to hand over things and so on. But then actually, like, remember, you know, 2015, you know, uh, era, kind of everyone knew about um, Ascribe, everyone in blockchain land. And even 2017, 2018, and you know, we iterated with a lot of these. Everyone doing IP, whether it's you know the Ujo guys or Jax guys doing music, or otherwise, we iterated with all of them, right? And, and Koala, the group of Koala for Koala IP, etc. Um, and uh, then there was you know this new breed of people doing um, the the digital art, right? Like No One Origin and Super Rare, and you know they were well aware of us and partly inspired from us. And we're like, that is great. Why? because we now feel that the artists themselves aren't left hanging if we can give them a transition. So for us, it wasn't about like trying to grab that piece of pie for ourselves. It was more like really trying to solve that problem and serve the artists, right? Um, and, then, and then along the way, right? Like, you know, with BigChain, uh, we were focusing on enterprise use cases, but enterprises also weren't ready to pull the trigger yet. It was a permissions chain, all this. So we said, okay, let's go back to permissionless because we know that works really well, pull in really great incentives. And solve yet another problem we saw, which was, um, you know, helping AI people get data, and that's with Ocean. But interestingly, with Ocean, under the hood, um, it's also, you know, IP management, copyright, and all that, the same way that our scribe was. So we leveraged all of our learnings from Ascribe. Wow. So in a sense, a lot of a lot of what we did and built for um, Ascribe lives on in Ocean and the front end markets and so on of that, right? And we have our own take on, you know, how to solve things like. You know, well, A, like we have really great legals, right? That's simply just like Ascribe did, right? It has very precise legals on 
you know, claiming of copyright and then sublicensing, et cetera. We had actually a lawyer full time to work on work on this for a couple of years to like lay this all down. And um, so these days people say, well, you know, I own it if I right click and save. And it's like, no, <laughs> just, like, you know, it's just like, that's not how it works, right? Like if, if I download and save a Michael Jackson song, does that mean I can go and sell it in the, uh, you know, in a local music store? Of course not, right? And it comes down to, you know, copyright is the baseline and then licensing. So I guess I'm going on here, but the summary is Ascribe evolved into Big Chain to solve a, a particular problem there. That evolved in Ocean, which we've been at since early 2017. Um, and, you know, there's overlap of each of these things a bit. Um, and Ocean then has leveraged all of the learnings of Ascribe about, you know, um, you know helping people um, reclaim their ownership um, around data itself, et cetera. Uh, rather than, you know, this um, specific for digital art, right? And we are working with people in the art world, actually, in Ocean, because it works for that as well, right? Um, sure. And we've, we've, we've addressed the issues of licensing and all that, right? Fractional ownership, all of that. We have some nice answers for that. So overall, like, I'm overjoyed. Like, I'm overjoyed that artists are able to get paid. Sure, in the end, we weren't, you know, Ascribe wasn't the ones helping artists get paid, but we helped to inspire towards people that are, and that's great, right? If Ascribe gets resurrected, um, you know, uh, that's that's great, right? Um, so maybe it will, you know, come to life the way that Curo Cards is by using that old code base, whatever. That's cool. Right. That's great, right? I encourage people to go for it. I'm and I'm happy to help contribute technically, et cetera. So that's fantastic. So yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. It's fantastic because this is the way stuff in the world is built, and you've done it kind of on this microcosm where, um, you know, the learnings and the stacking of knowledge and information and all this stuff, right? It would be impossible if you wanted to build ocean in uh in 2015 impossible right you have to have all these learnings which build up to actually do this thing and that's how yeah. you know we as humans just build everything right it's how we got to the modern nft is from all these people doing all these experiments and trying all this stuff um you know back in 2013 14 15 16 and you were uh, yeah. you know, a big part of it. And uh, yeah. it's fantastic. And there was many before us. There was many before course, us too, yeah. doing various pieces, right? Yeah. Like the, the, the proof of existence stuff with Manu Eros and the MasterCoin stuff and several yeah. others, right? And even, yeah. you know, pre-blockchain stuff, a lot of great stuff. So like I see it that we were, you know, one step in many. We yeah. really had a, you know, a, a big foot in the digital art space serving artists, but, uh, you know, one step in many and it's just an ongoing evolution. And, uh, you know, for the first time in history, you know, people doing digital art can truly get paid well and make a living from it. I love that. It makes me so happy. Absolutely. Fantastic, dude. Trent, thank you so much for joining me today, clearing up a lot of questions that I know people are going to be really excited to dig in. I do feel like, uh, you know, what they're talking about, which is respinning up uh, a scribe and get it working and, and contacting galleries and artists and, and having them access their, their, uh, their NFTs and stuff is going to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that because from a historical spec perspective, I think it's super interesting. And obviously, you're a big part of what's happening in today's uh, modern NFTs. So thanks for joining me, man. Thank you very much for having me.